All right. So if you do have a Bible, you can stay right in Nehemiah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. The book of Nehemiah is about God's people finding their identity with him at the center, while at the same time revealing that apart from the transforming work of Jesus, we will inherently fall short of the glory of God. That is the overarching theme that we understand from this book, that we understand from its historical narrative, that we understand from the reading of all those names we did last week until as they're building the wall and reading the word of the Lord as we finish this book. And so far what we've seen over the last three weeks in Nehemiah, he is born, raised, and thriving in exile. Right? Nehemiah hears a report of the condition of the city of Jerusalem and is so burdened and broken that he weeps and mourns for days. He prays to God and then God gives him the boldness to act. Right? So at this point, God's people have been in exile about 150 years. The kingdom has been split about 550 or so years at this point. And the story of the scripture zooms in on this man, Nehemiah, and especially his obedience to God. So the king allows him to go, we see that in chapter 2, to take some of his army materials and Nehemiah inspects the city and rallies the nation of Israel living in the city. And that's what chapter 3 is about. We don't exactly have all the numbers, but there are roughly uh, forty to 50,000 of the Israelites who had come back to living in the city of Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple, but at that point it was more a religious community center. The presence of God had not returned to the temple, but the walls and the gates were crumbling. So after learning about the scope of the problem, Right after Nehemiah inspects all of these different things, he rallies the people of God together to work, to rebuild the wall, rebuild the gates, and rebuild their honor. Right, so we left off with what Nehemiah charges the Jews with this vision, and they encounter their first bit of resistance, some jeering from some of the characters that we saw in chapter 4 as well. So rather than displaying the authority of the king for their project, where Nehemiah could have easily said, here's our decree, we can do whatever we want, the king said so. They rely and they call on the character and the promises of God. Right then in chapter 3, God in his sovereignly crafted story pauses the narrative for us. Right, and we get this whole long list of names. And we see who helped with this particular project. And it may seem peculiar, a uh, list of names may not seem they, uh, like they would have much value to us today. Maybe it was just for simple record keeping back then. But what we discovered out of this whole chapter of names is that people matter to God. The people especially who worked on this project mattered. And the principle we took away is that people matter to God. And then we learned that obedience to God is more valuable than skill because the people that were listed were not all craftsmen like carpenters and woodworkers, but they were professionals. They were priests. They were governors, all pitching in to help build the wall. And the third thing we learned last week was that vision and leadership can only go so far as the obedience and faithfulness of God's people. So Nehemiah cast this vision in chapter 2, and if they had heard the vision and said, oh yeah, cool story, that sounds awesome. Like it could have just stopped at that point, but what Nehemiah 3 tells is that people heard and responded to the vision. So the mission of God continues forward. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, the people of God have a mind to work. They have set their will, their desires to build, to carry out this mission that God has given them. 
They take these crumbling walls and the rubble in the city and begin to sort and sweat and build until the work is about halfway done. But then what we see is the jeering and the taunts and the opposition pops back up again. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he's one of the guys in in chapter 2, you remember that at the very end. He was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up, but he will break down their stone wall. Now, insults from like, you know, 2,500 years ago maybe don't have the same effect on us that they did at the time, but they were insulting them. They were looking at what the Jews were doing and building, and they were literally scoffing and making fun of them. And they were they were questioning their own identity, right? Were they, will they sacrifice again? Are they hoping to revive this city that was once great? And before, while it might have seemed harmless, the jeers that we read in in chapter 2, it is now a lot more serious. The accusations are against their identity, and they're playing into the insecurities and the fears of the people of God. The city and the walls represent more than just a city that we've learned about. It represents a people, an identity, this, this marker of who God's people were. And so quite literally, the attacks were seen here on them as a nation, not just on their work or their work ethic or something like that. And then he interjects, Nehemiah interjects his, his voice and his prayer into the story. And it's a similar kind of prayer that we see in a couple of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 74 and, and 79, where he prays these imprecatory prayers that what is happening to him that God would turn on his enemies. Look at verse 4, Hear, O God, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so in these moments when attacks against their identity are coming, Nehemiah pauses his story and he stops and he prays that God would provide for them, he would protect them, and in fact that he would do everything to them they are hoping are done to the Jews. This is crucial because at this point in the building, the project still could have been thwarted or stopped or something like that. And so kind of attacks on the character at this point, attacks on their identity at this point would have, would have meant something because there was still time for this building project to not have been complete. But the commitment of the people of God is a sign of God's blessing because he gave the people amidst opposition a deep desire to do the work. They had a mind to work and that sustained them throughout the project. Now, how many times have we started a project and fall off halfway through. I mean, we are at the end of February, so I'm willing to bet some of your New Year's resolutions are not happening still to this point, right? Like we maybe fell off the train halfway through February or January or something like that. Like it is so easy to start things and it is so difficult to finish. That is exactly where we find the story of the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 4. I mean, at the beginning of the year, I started six books, 
and I have not finished any of them. And I was so convicted of this as I was pres- uh, finishing this message for you guys and kind of studying this text. I finished two of them yesterday just because I felt so convicted about not finishing the things that I've been diligent to start. Right? But God sustains them. He gives them this mind to work and the mind to continue on and to persevere. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Their insults, their attacks on the identity did not work because the work was continuing. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And so the opposition escalates here. It's no longer just insults. It's now insults on their identity and their very character. And then it's not just insults on their identity anymore, but it's now them plotting against them to cause confusion in the city. And so what Nehemiah responds with is along with his prayers, Nehemiah takes prudent action. And this is a common theme that we see pop up in Nehemiah quite frequently, this idea of prayer with action. And it's so great because it it challenges a lot of our default positions, right, where we might tend towards action and then, you know, ask God later or pray later, or we might kind of sit on our butt and pray, 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 but never actually engage or do anything or obey what God is calling us into. And one of these continual themes throughout the book of Nehemiah we see is this weaving together of prayer with action or prayer with obedience to God. That there's this ongoing dialogue or conversation with God throughout, but that doesn't mean he's removed from doing anything, but he enters in and he is diligent and there's prudent action happening. And soon the people grow weary and discouraged and the progress slows. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, so this is not only just Jerusalem, but throughout the entire region now. Word is getting out about what's happening in Jerusalem. The strength of those who bear the burden, the bear the burdens is, is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The people no longer have this mind to work, but are focused on their own inadequacies. And now the opinions of everyone living in the surrounding region of the city is interjected into the story where those who bear the burden... Their burden is failing. There is too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And at this point, it's just interesting to note that they say by themselves. Because at every step of the way, the story of the people of God in Nehemiah, God has been leading them, strengthening them, providing for them, guiding them. Right? It was his provision that allowed Nehemiah to go in the first place and rally the troops. It was God who caused the king to give up materials and, and members of the army and everything like that to join and to help Nehemiah. Right? It was God's strength and it was God with his people that was able to get this project off the ground in the first place. And here in verse 10, they are now questioning their own identity by saying they were doing this by themselves listening to the attacks of their enemies, listening to the opposition, being discouraged. They forget how far God had brought them to this point and now saying they are doing this alone. 
Look at verse 11, and our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So this escalates really quickly from just insults to insults on their identity to plotting to, yeah, let's go kill them uh, so they can stop the wall. So there's some serious opposition to what is happening with the wall here. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us, 10 times you must return to us. Okay, so let me give you a picture of what's happening here. In verse 10, the whole region is starting to murmur a little bit about the lack of progress and the discouragement and how they are alone, right? Maybe echoing the sentiment that God has forsaken them. We have this plot to kill those who are working on the wall from the surrounding nations. They do not want the city and the honor of Jerusalem to be restored. They like the Jews exactly where they're at, enslaved and with no honor and with no city, And then those who are living in the the outlying kind of region say to those who are in the city building, not everyone had come to build. There were lots of uh, Jews living around the surrounding regions, and they say to them, come back to us, leave the city, it's too dangerous. This task of rebuilding the wall is massive, and it's become discouraging, and now it's become dangerous. Israel's enemies have terrified the people with the threat of a deadly night attack, and the friends and the family of the people who have come to do the work from the villages outside the city try to persuade them to come home. So Nehemiah, here in the next two verses, gives the reason to stay, to build, and to fight. And there are kind of three things we draw out of this, or three things he leads the people into that we can observe. And in verse 13, as Nehemiah readies his people to build and fight simultaneously now, he bolsters the community. He reminds them they are not alone. Look at verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So they're not by themselves. They're with their clans. They're not isolated, but they're together as families prepared to build and do battle. And they keep working on the wall. What's important here is Nehemiah recognizes they can't continue what God had asked of them by themselves. They have to join together in community, in families, in clans to accomplish what God has for them. And here is like the biggest tee-up I have ever seen for why we should be in community groups together as a church. Like for real, like what Nehemiah's solution is to the attacks from outside and the discouragement of the people is to remind them they're not alone. They've been joined in a family. They're a people, a nation of God. And so he sets them to work and fight together where they might have been spread out or isolated along the wall, repairing gates or whatever, he brings them together as clans and families. And he says, build and fight together. I mean, this is insanely applicable for us today. When we feel hopeless, when we feel discouraged, when we feel maybe the attacks on our identity or our character or who we are, throughout the Bible, the call is to do this life together to build the kingdom of God together, to fight the attacks of the enemy together as a family, as community. And in verse 14, he calls them to look beyond themselves. He says that their life has implications beyond their own life. And he says to remember the Lord. And this language is a a hearken back to the stories in Exodus and Deuteronomy 
Look at verse 14, the first half of it. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome. Throughout the story of the Israelites, God in his own identity would remind the nation of Israel what he had done for them. He'd say, remember how I have brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I've sustained you in the desert. Remember how I've brought you into the promised land. And so Nehemiah uses familiar language to them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember that the mission is not your own. It's God's, right? This wasn't their fantastical idea to rebuild the wall and the gates and to rebuild the city. This was God's heart imparted to Nehemiah, and he rallies the people, and God provides for them. So he will provide and protect them. He will equip you. He will defend you. And in Nehemiah, there's this incredible confidence that comes from knowing they're doing the Lord's work. There's this this holy confidence that comes from knowing that this is what God wants us to do. Such a certainty in their obedience that they plant that flag and say, this is what we are here to do. We know God will protect us, defend us, provide for us, because this is his mission, not ours. And finally, in the second half of that verse, he gives them this, this legacy, this view beyond themselves. Because often when we are discouraged, when there are attacks on our own character, it is easy to look inward and think of ourselves. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They are spiritual patriarchs. In their obedience and service to the Lord, they are setting a new trajectory for the people that will come behind them. They are setting the tone for the generations that will come after them as they rebuild this wall and obey God. Right Over the last 150 years, they've been in exile, and we know that they are in exile because they have pulled away from the covenant of God. They have been unfaithful where God has been faithful, and here they have an opportunity to obey and to be faithful and set a different tone than one that's been set in generations before. They have an opportunity to change history for their people. And I was thinking about this and how often we actually don't really have a view for the generations that'll come after us. And it's, and it's maybe it's at the forefront of my mind because uh, we, have a, we have a 15-month-old son and then we have another one on the way. And so my mind is shifted from just the life that Sherry and I lead to the life that Calvin and our unnamed, you know, baby boy that's coming will live. And even their kids and what they will feel called to and how they will be obedient and faithful to the Lord. And then their kids— and it's exposed in me just such a kind of single generation view that I've, that I've had. And that I've always kind of pointed the finger at the older people above me for not having, right? And then I kind of make life about myself and my story and what God's doing in me. And what Nehemiah is doing is redirecting some of that attention. They say, you guys have an opportunity to set a different trajectory for your family, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes, your husbands, your cousins, your friends. And I was, as I was thinking about this, what came to my mind was, was my parents, of course. 
And I was thinking just the life that, that they have lived, and they are by no stretch perfect. They have plenty of flaws like the rest of us. But what I love about my parents and what I really value in their story is they are the first Christians in both of their families. So neither of them were raised in a, in a Christian home knowing the love and the, and the grace of Jesus and the hope that comes from life in him. And so my mom was in college, and, and she got saved, and as she was dating my dad, she said, well, you have to be a Christian if we're going to, you know, go any farther and get married or anything like that. And so he started reading the Bible, was convinced by the truth of the Bible, and they had set a new trajectory for our family. What could have been a very different life for myself and, and my other siblings? It was totally and completely changed because they had shifted the focus. They had shifted the trajectory that that family might have been on. Nehemiah calls the people of Israel to not just think of themselves, but those coming after them. That they are walking in this legacy. And it's not because they're anything special, it's because they are being obedient and faithful to God. And that's what sets the new trajectory. That's what sets behind them this legacy for future generations. So he encourages them, and in in verse verse 15, it seems like things are starting to look up a little bit, right? When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, the plans of the enemies, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And so for whatever reason, they felt comfortable and safe enough to return to their work because God had frustrated the plans of the enemies. The immediate threat appears to be gone, but as the work continues— What Nehemiah does is set half of the people to defend the city, and then the other half are set to work. Look at verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work and with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Once again, Nehemiah had prayed and was trusting God to come to their defense, but in tandem with prayer is this readiness for action. They keep their weapons close at hand. It's often interesting to note that God often accomplishes his purpose through ordinary human means. There's frequently this this interaction of God with humanity, and sometimes it's supernatural and miraculous, and sometimes he is using the people he has created to accomplish his means. Let's keep reading in verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built, which was incredibly cumbersome. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are all separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. All right, so he's just simply saying they're spread out across the wall. So he's going to have a guy giving the like lookout signal. And if there's any action happening around there, he's going to blow the trumpet and people are going to rally there. So we labored at the work and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. that They may be on guard for us by day and may labor, uh, sorry, on guard for us by night and labor by day. 
So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were consistently and constantly ready for what might be attacks on them. And this chapter ends with this readiness that is evident and apparent in the people. They are ready to build and ready to fight. Ready to defend and ready to pursue the mission that God has for them. For the people of God, the battle was incredibly real. Right? As they were trying to accomplish what God had asked them to do, there was this constant threat of being killed for what they were doing. As they advanced the mission of God, they were simultaneously ready for attacks from the enemy. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, speaks of a similar readiness Christians should have in their life for the battles that we face. In the midst of gospel advancement, as we're obeying God, as his kingdom is moving forward, we must be ready to pursue the mission God has for us, but we must also be ready for attacks from the enemy. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the causing powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul says our battle, however difficult, is, is real. The battle, however different it may have seemed from Nehemiah, is real. We may not face persecution or, you know, literal attacks on our own bodily health like the people of God did in Nehemiah, but we face battles nonetheless. I came across, uh, as I was reading and and doing some study work in Ephesians chapter 6, I came across this great quote from a book. I highly recommend it if you've ever read any of C.S. Lewis's work. He has this little book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a work of fiction, for sure, uh, but it's a collection of letters from one kind of mentor demon to his apprentice, and it sort of weaves the story of how, uh, of kind of giving us this, this bigger picture of what uh, battle in the spiritual places might look like. It's a fascinating read, and it's a series of letters that makes up this book, and to the question about revealing his existence to his patient, as he calls him, in hopes that he might dissuade him from a pursuit of God, the mentor writes, oh, perfect, it's back there. The mentor writes, my dear Wormwood, which is the apprentice demon here, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence, right? Should you reveal him to him? Should you reveal yourself to him? I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. It continues, If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. And to sum that up a little bit more succinctly, one of my very favorite movies is called The Usual Suspects, and there's a a quote in there by, by one of the characters, and he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Paul and Nehemiah remind us that the battle is real. 
the enemy would like to remind us that the battle is not real, that there is no spiritual realm that are, that are duking it out in the world, that it's just what you see around here, what you can smell and taste and touch and see. But Paul and Nehemiah remind us that the enemy is active and at work. The battle against the attacks of the enemy are real, and as Christians, we are called into a life of, of vigilance and readiness and action, readiness to pursue what God has in front of us while assuming opposition from the enemy. God never promises an easy life. He never promises a life free from opposition. He does promise that he will provide for us, that he will strengthen us, that he gives us his spirit to empower us for life and godliness. So as you kind of wind down this this look in in Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to close and and maybe as a church call us to a couple of things from this text. And the first is to simply be ready, is the first one. Nehemiah instructs the people building the wall to be prepared for battle, right? He tells them to build with their sword strapped to them, to expect attacks, expects to defend the work that God is doing in them. And Peter writes, to the church in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Peter says to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter tells us to be ready. Nehemiah tells the people of Israel to be ready. There is an activeness in the enemy that is at work in the world. And it is often met by our passivity and our ignorance or our assuming that it's not going to happen to us. And as Christians, we are to be ready, watchful, because the enemy wants to take you out. He wants to make you feel ineffective. He wants to puncture your holy confidence. He wants to question your identity as called, holy, equipped, spirit-filled children of God. He wants to make you question that. So the first thing as Christians we must do is to be ready. We must, even what we're praying in our, in our kind of pre-gathering prayer time is that we would just, our eyes would be open to what God is doing and, and the world beyond what we can just see and, and touch and feel. That we would just understand that there is more to life than what we see around us. And God is calling us to be ready for that, to be ready to engage that. The second is to be equipped Remember we were talking last week how God loves obedience, especially over skill, but that doesn't mean we can discount any kind of skill or training or equipness or anything like that. God will draw you out of comfort zones and in spaces to rely on him. Right? But that's no excuse not to get equipped because in Paul's continuing thought from chapter 6 in Ephesians, he says, Therefore, since there are spiritual battles in the world and in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having Put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And I don't know about you, I I grew up in church, and so to me, this verse always represented like a cardboard cutout of like a knight. And there were like different things, and so it always kind of became a little cheeky and cheesy to me. And so I want us to understand is is the truth that Paul is trying to give us here in Ephesians chapter 6. He says in those first couple of verses, 10 through 13, that there is a spiritual battle, and we need to be prepared for it. And to be prepared, he gives us ways to battle that to be equipped with truth and righteousness, right? To be equipped with the gospel of peace, to take hold of our faith, right? To celebrate, remember our salvation in Jesus, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, know it, understand it, spend time in it, love it, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and and supplication. Paul gives us ways to battle the enemy that is about. It's time with God and his word, praying, life in the family, truth, righteousness. We are to ready ourselves for the life that God has called us to. He calls us to himself, and so he himself is our strength, and he's our power, and he's our provider, and each one of these areas that Paul calls us to is God himself. And so may we have our roots go deep, in the gospel of Jesus. Part of our battle against the enemy is a battle against our own sinfulness too. Because that sinfulness opens up opportunities or or footholds for the enemies to tempt us or to lure us or uh, the biblical term is to entrap us or ensnare us. And so it's not just like spooky spirits that are happening. We should read our Bible to protect us or anything like that. There's also very real sinfulness that creeps into our lives and opens ourselves up to opportunities to be distracted from what God has from us or to be taken out of the battle or to be made ineffective. So we are called to be ready to get equipped and to fight sin is our third one. We are called to fight sin, and often we tend to think this is maybe a passive thing that happens to us over time because we have the Holy Spirit, and we just sort of sit back and relax and let him do his thing. We maybe treat it like a haircut, right? Jerry cut my hair the other day or, or last night, and, and that's something like as a, as a person, you boldly proclaim, I'm going to get a haircut, and then what do you do? You, you sit in that chair and you do nothing, like the barber does it all for you, right? Or maybe it's like a massage, where you say, I'm going to get a massage. I have knots in my back. And then you go and you lay on someone's table and they do all the work. That's maybe some of the picture we read into how we fight sin, is I'm going to fight sin. Okay, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. And there is this unexplainable beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There is an active responsibility, however, for us as Christians to engage with that work. It is a two-way street. We don't just sit on the couch and become sanctified over time. We engage with the work that the Spirit is doing in our life. In that same book that C.S. Lewis writes, The Screwtape Letters, he has another quote I will read to you. He says, The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. 
And so as this mentor demon in this work of fiction is writing to his apprentice, we see great truths about life and and what it looks like to follow God or to say no to God. The more he feels without acting, the more he feels some sort of emotional connection or some, some engagement with scriptures on a Sunday or in a community group or something like that, and then does not act, the less he will ever be able to act. And the less we act, the less we will be able to feel. There's this continual cycle of callousness we get when we say no to what God is doing. We saw that last week. The longer we notice our own sinfulness and do nothing to battle it, the more we become accustomed and okay with it. The more we say no to God and yes to our own selfishness and sinfulness, the more dim the voice of God becomes and callous our response. It's why we do things like celebrating confession and repentance every single week together. It's why it's a regular part of our community groups. It's because we are forgetful people. Like the Israelites, we often have spiritual amnesia and forget what God has taken us out of. And we become accustomed and okay to the life we have. Paul, however, in his letter to the Romans, says we should never be okay with the status quo of our own sinfulness. Rather, he uses harsh language. We are to put to death sin in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Big picture, we have the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. We cannot, like the Israelites did in Nehemiah chapter 4, say we are doing this alone. We are empowered by the Spirit of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And as sons of God led by the Spirit, we are called to a life of constantly denying footholds for the enemy. By what Ed Welsh calls a declaration of all-out war. Ed Welsh was writing a book. It's writing a book about addictions and stuff like that. And he, and he in preparation um, uh, for this book, he had this quote that he published And he says, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. And so perfectly encapsulates what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. We cannot continue to live with this apathy and passivism towards our own sinfulness. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. 
right? So why the, the illusion or the illustration of declaration of war? You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you are ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant, so there's this picture that Ed Welch is trying to evoke in us, the same picture that Paul is trying to evoke in us in Romans chapter 8 is this readiness for what is around us. And often we are kind of dumbed down, we are maybe slothful, we are maybe unaware of what's happening or just okay with the things that we see in the world or in ourselves. One of the points we tried to draw out of Nehemiah chapter 1 is that our hearts should break for this broken world. That things are not the way they should be. And it should affect us. Because God's heart is broken for this world. And part of being part of God's family is we have his heart. He's giving us his heart for this world and for ourselves. We are giving the enemy exactly what he wants when we justify, nullify, pacify our own sin rather than confessing, repenting, and basking in the wonder and mystery of his inexhaustible forgiveness. We give the enemy exactly what he wants when he say, God could never forgive this thing I've done, or this is too much, or this is not really that big a deal. God doesn't need to worry about that. God doesn't notice that. We don't have to worry about that. We give him exactly what he wants. Instead, life in Christ means we are regularly confessing and repenting and celebrating this inexhaustible forgiveness, the mercies that are new every morning. So our biggest enemy may not be Satan, if I can take a little bit of liberty here in this moment, it may be ourselves, right? It's my laziness, my apathy, my controlling nature, my distractedness, my thinking more highly of myself than I ought, right? My biggest enemy is Bert, and the enemy will use those things if I'm not continually repenting and celebrating the forgiveness I have. And the great gospel truth in this message is that we are not alone, Like the Israelites claimed, they were alone, they were not. God had led them there, he had empowered them. And the same is true for us. And being ready and getting equipped and fighting sin may seem daunting, and it certainly did to the Israelites in chapter 4. And the enemy wants us to, to feel isolated, to make us feel like we're the only ones going through what we're going through, making us feel inadequate or unready or unworthy. He wants to play to our own insecurities. He wants us to be lazy and sluggish and complacent about our own sinful nature. But because of the work of Jesus, we are fully made worthy, ready, and adequate because Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us for life and the mission that God has put us on. We do not do this alone, but empowered by the Spirit and living in community with other Christians. Paul, in that same chapter, Romans 8, seems to scoff at this notion that we do this alone or on our own strength. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God will fight for us, so we rely on Christ to be ready, to get equipped, 
and to fight sin. We cannot do this alone, but we must recognize that there is a battle for us. Like we're even praying this morning in that same pre-gathering prayer, I think Vanessa who brought it up, that there is, we've already experienced the, the opposition that there is in this town of Ventura as we've started this new work, as we've obeying Jesus and, and doing what he think, what we think he wants us to do in downtown Ventura, there's opposition. There's spiritual opposition. There are very real roadblocks to what God wants to do. And so for us as a church this morning, I want us to hone in and focus on this call that we have from Paul and from Peter and from Nehemiah to recognize God as our strength, our source of power, our source of provision. He will defend us. He will protect us. And our roles are to be ready, to get equipped, and to actively fight sin, to not let it creep in and be a foothold. So I'm going to ask Lauren to to come up here. She's going to lead us in a time of response And I'm actually just going to ask her to play like for a minute or two um, and just give us a couple of moments to to reflect, to meditate on on some of the truths in Nehemiah 4 and and Romans 8. I think for some of us in the room, the conversation is, is there a world beyond the things that we see? Is there anything really happening at a spiritual level or a heavenly level or anything like that? And for some of us, we may feel like we'll never be equipped or adequate or anything like that. That God has maybe forgotten you or abandoned you or or doesn't really care about you or anything like that. And for some of us, we've settled in with this complacency of our own sinfulness, even when we come to worship a holy God. And so for each one of those, maybe wherever you're, you're at, if those are affecting anyone in this room, Our encouragement this morning is to press in. Lauren's going to sing this song. It's called Come to the River. And often we see in the Psalms that the river, the fountain, is this this imagery of God's inexhaustible love and, and grace and mercy and these things that continually flow and flow and flow and have no end. Jesus says, come to me, all you weary who are burdened. Come thirsty. He's the well of life and he never runs dry. And so as we take just a couple of moments to think of our own sinfulness, of our, of our life, and maybe where we stand in this conversation, the invitation is come to the river. Come to the well of life who does not run dry. Come to Jesus who will sustain you and fight for you and defend you and provide for you. And like Paul says in Romans 8, if he is for us, who can be against us. There's such a holy confidence and a joy of being a part of the family of God.